Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you today, and I'm certainly glad that you are here with us to worship God and to learn a little bit about His Word. We're going to talk today about what's in James chapter 2, about favoritism and faith. And when I first was uh, putting this together, I actually thought about breaking it into two sermons. Because when you first read the chapter, at least I used to, when I would read the chapter, sounds like the first half he's talking about favoritism and the last half he's talking about faith. And they seem to be very separate things until you study it a little more closely. I was telling Dusty that this morning and he said, you know, it's interesting because on James chapter 1, I did the same thing. I thought it was different topics, but when I put it together, it wasn't really different topics. It was all one idea. And he starts out this passage by saying, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. I want to notice a couple of things. Number one, when he starts, he's talking about faith, isn't he? He said, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't hold that faith with partiality. What's partiality? How would you describe partiality? What is it? To be partial. How do we understand partiality in the world that we live in? You know, there are several words that are roughly synonymous with partiality. One of them is favoritism. Favoritism is a word that means I show favor to one over another. Another catchword or buzzword is discrimination. Yancey mentioned Ferguson. And that's the source of a lot of the tension at Ferguson is what we call discrimination. Sometimes we call it bias. You're biased. Ever have anybody tell you you were biased about something? Biased means that you give more credibility to one thing than the other before you ever start. Maybe we use the term prejudice. Prejudice means prejudge. means you've judged before you get there. You're prejudiced so when you hear the two people present their side, say for instance in a political debate, if you come in as a conservative... And there's going to be a political debate between a liberal and a conservative. You've generally prejudged which side you're going to agree with before they even start talking, haven't you? That's prejudging, prejudice. Another term, maybe not as nice a term, is bigotry. Have you ever been called a bigot? We don't use that word a lot anymore, do we? just means that you don't give credibility where credibility is due to people because of some external circumstance. A less offensive term is preference. Well, I just have a preference. I prefer this or that or something else. We may say, might talk about inequality. You know, all of these, the idea behind all of them is that you treat some people different than you treat other people. Are you that way? Do you have a tendency to treat people differently based on external circumstances? Not really knowing the person, but just looking at them and seeing something about them and making a judgment about that person based on what you see. You know, there's something you'll read about in the news they call racial profiling. You know what that is? Racial profiling is when they see 
For instance, a young black man in a car in a white neighborhood late at night, they pull that guy over because he's a black guy in a car in a white neighborhood. That's racial profiling. And there's a lot of objection to that. And then some people that defend that, some people say, well, most crime in that neighborhood is going to be committed by that kind of guy, so it's smart to profile and think he maybe did a crime. And other people say, well, that's not right. Just because he's a black guy in a car in a white neighborhood doesn't mean he did anything wrong. The Bible talks about this. The Bible talks about how you and I, as Christians, treat each other. And I'm going to tell you, the Bible starts with many, many places teaching you and I that God judges people different than the way we judge people, doesn't He? You know, Scripture tells us this. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever so fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. His God doesn't show partiality. In every nation, no matter where people were. Now, the guy that said this, his name was Peter. He was an apostle of the Lord. And Peter was a racist. Okay, he really was. He split a church over racism because he didn't want to eat with the Gentiles when other people who didn't like the Gentiles showed up. So he had this double standard and Peter had a problem. The Lord gave him a vision and in this vision he let down this net out of heaven and this big net had in it all kinds of animals that God had told him don't eat. Pigs and camels and stuff like that. And God told Peter when he saw this vision, he said, Arise, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And God told him, What I've called clean, don't you call unclean. See, the problem with judging that you and I have is that when we judge based on external factors and external circumstances, we tend sometimes to call unclean what God has called clean. Because we're looking at different things, aren't we? You know, the Lord's church is what we might call a multicultural church. The Lord's church is people of every race, every nation, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, That's the Lord's people. Now, I don't know who these people are. I just got that picture off the internet. I don't know if any of those are Lord's people or not. But it illustrates the point. You see, James, who was the brother of Jesus Christ, understood this concept. James understood it very well. And James gives us a test case to use, which was a problem back then. And I'm going to tell you, it's a problem today. And his test case that he uses in this situation is a test case of wealth. He said, we're going to use wealth as an example of favoritism. Because, you know what? People tend to show favoritism toward wealthy people. People who are famous or powerful or have wealth. Right? Don't we do that? It's just the American way. Well, no, not the American way. It's just the way of the world. Remember what he said in the reading that Dustin did for us? He said, some guy comes into church and he's got fine clothes and he has a gold ring, and he's got a nice place to live. You know, we have visitors that come into our assemblies. 
We have people that we get to know. And some of them have money. And some of them have nice things. And, you know, we look at somebody like this and we might go, boy, I tell you what, you know, be nice to have them here. Wouldn't you like to have a nice young couple like that? I mean, successful and capable and probably not if they were wearing dollar signs on their head. But did you understand what I'm talking about? How would you treat somebody like that? What would your reaction to those people be? He said, when somebody comes into your assembly and they got on fine clothes and nice jewelry and they look nice and they've got money and they've got the things that come with money, said, y'all are treating them good. You're giving them a place of honor. I went to Boston a few years ago, went to the Old North Church, you know, where one if by land and two if by sea. Went to the Old North Church and we went in and we looked at that church and they had boxes. They didn't have pews like this. They had pews in boxes. And the boxes were kind of had a wall around the box. And you'd open that box and go in and there were family boxes. And the more money you gave to the church, the better your box. And if you gave a lot of money, you got a box right up front. There were ex-presidents that had boxes in that church. And they had their name on a little plaque right up front. Because they had a lot of money. They bought privilege in the Lord's church with that money. Other people that come into the church may not have the same wealth. They may not have the same possessions. They may not live in the same kind of houses. What would your reaction to these people be? Would you treat them different than the previous family? When you went to visit, went to say, hey, we're glad you came to church. We'd love to have you come back and visit with us. Would you stay longer at one house than the other? Would your response be different to these people than these people? Now, the truth is you don't know anything about them other than pictures you've seen, right? If your response, if you would treat them differently... That's not what God wants His people to do and to be. God does not want you to hold His faith with partiality. He goes ahead and He says this, Listen, my brethren, my beloved brethren, God has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man... Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You do well. He says, do not treat people differently because they've got more stuff than you treat other people that don't have the same amount of stuff. The reason is you and I want to be godly, right? We want to be like God. We want to be like Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible tells us, you see, that God does not see as man sees. God doesn't look at people like you and I do because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When God looks at someone, He doesn't look at their stuff. 
Their stuff is irrelevant to them. Their stuff is meaningless to them. Or to, I say to them, to God, to Him. He looks at the heart, the kind of person they are inside. That's what God is concerned with. And that's what He wants you and I. Look at what He goes ahead and says here in the next verse. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Did you know it's sin to show partiality? That's what God says. Not just, well, I know that's something you ought to to do better. No, God said it's sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you commit do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now he says if you show partiality, you've committed sin. And if you've committed sin, you're guilty as a lawbreaker just like everyone else that's ever lived, right? He says, here's the deal. God, same God said, don't commit adultery and don't murder, right? Well, somebody doesn't commit adultery and they go, well, you know, I may have my problems, at least I never committed adultery. (laughs) And he says, you know what? When the law breaks, it breaks like that tempered glass. It just breaks. And it doesn't matter if the crack was up in this corner or down in that corner or anywhere else. The law breaks, it just breaks. And you are a lawbreaker if you broke the law. Doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Doesn't matter if you're powerful or you're powerless. Doesn't matter who you are. If you break the law of God, you are a lawbreaker. And the particular break he's talking about here is this break of partiality. Now let me show you something that Leviticus, God said in Leviticus. God's always been this way. He says this in Leviticus 19, You shall do no injustice in judgment. Now all this time he's been talking about being partial. And he says you commit sin in that you become a judge. God doesn't want us to be judging one another. There are specific things we're commanded to judge, but in the sense of of showing partiality. He says, do not be unjust. Don't show any injustice in judgment. I say, well, you know, I understand what you're saying. It would be unjust to show show preference to one person over another based on how much they have. That wouldn't be right. We shouldn't do that. I I can accept that. But God didn't leave it right there. God described it a little bit different. He said, show no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. Did you know it is just as sinful to show partiality to poor people as it is to show partiality to rich people? It's just as sinful to show partiality to people who don't have anything because they don't have anything as it is to show partiality to somebody who has a lot because they have a lot. It's just as wrong to show partiality to somebody because they're white as it is to show partiality to somebody because they're black. They're both wrong. 
It's both wrong. It's sin. Anyway, it's injustice in judgment. And God has never accepted that in His kingdom with His people. And He doesn't accept it today. He expects you and I to be different. If you see somebody from the Middle East, and you can tell they're from the Middle East maybe because of the way they're dressed, maybe they got a little dot on their forehead right here, If you treat them different because of the way they look, that's sin. God says it's wrong and that's not the way His people are. If you treat people better because they're like you in some way, because they dress like you or they like the same music you like or they like the same sports team you like, that's wrong. That's not the way God is. And that's not the way God wants His people He says this in the very next verse. He says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Because mercy triumphs over just judgment. You know, this idea of judgment being without mercy to those who have shown no mercy is all through the Bible. Are you quick to be critical and condemning to other people? You quick to see what's wrong with other people and just either outwardly or inwardly? Are you a negative, critical, tearing down kind of person? He says, if you are, your judgment is going to be the same as you meet out to other people. If you don't show mercy, you're not going to have mercy. This phrase right here really, really got to me. I was thinking about it. What exactly does he mean, mercy triumphs over judgment? There was a young lady one time who, I have no doubt that the words burned her ears as they called her all kinds of names. As the door burst open and she was caught in the very act of committing adultery and was dragged out into the street And she heard the talk and she heard them yelling and she was humiliated and embarrassed. And she hears somebody say something about stoning and she thinks, Oh God, no, they're not going to kill me right now. And she's been caught and she's humiliated and she's destroyed and she committed sin and it's her own fault and it's, it's no one's fault but hers. And she's drugged before a young man who's a teacher, and he's standing there teaching his disciples. And the people who caught her and drug her there said, what do we do with her? The law of Moses says to kill her. And the young man stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they said, what are we going to do with her? Answer, do we do what Moses said or not? And he said, you who without sin... Cast the first stone. And she heard the grumbling and the disgusted grunts and the noises as shuffling as her condemners all walked away. And then the young man, who was Jesus, looked at her and he said, Where are your accusers? And she looked around. And they were gone. Did that mean she hadn't sinned? Did that mean what she did was okay? No. What she did was 
was terrible defilement in the eyes of God. She said, there's no one. He said, neither do I condemn you. You go your way and don't do it anymore. You don't sin anymore. You don't sin again. Now, I'll tell you why I believe this section is in here. Because I believe what James is teaching you and I is that in this situation, we are all in the same boat regardless of external circumstances. We're all in the same boat. We're dressed in different clothes. We drove different cars. We eat different food. We like different sports. We do different things for entertainment. But we're all in the same boat. That boat is, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when I know that about me, how can I treat you different based on some external something I see? As a Christian, I can't do that. As a child of God, how can I hold the faith of Jesus Christ who died to tear down that wall of partition between people and between us and God? How can I hold that with partiality? And he says, you can't. You can't do that. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? You can walk around and talk about your faith and your Christianity all the time. And I'll tell you something. Y'all know we homeschooled and y'all know we were around that Christian homeschool association people and all. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of good people there, but there's a lot of judgmentalism. There's a lot of, oh, we're holy. There's a lot of, oh, praise Jesus, if you just knew my heart, you'd understand why you shouldn't think bad when I do these mean things to people. And that's the truth. And God says that's wrong. God says you can talk all day long about your faith, but if your faith doesn't show, then your faith is meaningless. He goes ahead... You know, there's a real conflict in the religious world about faith and works. And this past, this section here, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know what, I go to some churches and I hear all they talk about is faith, and other churches you talk about works all the time. What's the truth? What do you believe? What's the Bible teach? I believe James explains that to us very well here. You know, some people view our good works as things that obligate God to save me. God's going to be obligated to save me because I helped little old ladies across the street. I helped Jeremy move when he needed to move. And I helped take care of somebody's kids when they had a bad day. And I gave some money to the church. And I did this or that. And I, and I had faith in His Son. And, and all those things obligate God to save me. And the truth is, none of those obligate God to save you at all. Because one sin, the wages of sin is death. You're not, God is not obligated to you at all in any way because of the good things you do. Worst people that have ever lived have done some good things. Doing good things does not obligate you, God, to save you. The other side of that coin is people who say way over here, well, we're saved by faith alone. Works that we do are totally irrelevant because it's all Jesus. Jesus did it all. He saved me. I'm saved by His blood. I'm saved by His works, by His life. And nothing I do makes any difference at all. 
And I want to tell you, I know people who excuse sinful behavior because they believe the grace of God saves them. And so it doesn't matter what they do. The truth is, on the issue of partiality, as well as all other issues, the truth is, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The truth is, we are saved by a living faith that works. That's what James is teaching here. I'm not saved by my works. My works do nothing. But a living faith is a faith that's alive, and a faith that's alive does stuff, just like a human being that's alive breathes. If they're alive, they breathe. That's just a part of being alive. If you have a faith that's alive, your faith is going to obey God. It's not going to argue when God tells you don't show partiality. It's not going to excuse your partiality. It's going to respond to what God says. And if you hold the faith of Christ and show partiality, you're showing a dead faith, not a living faith. And it's a living faith that brings us righteousness. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Isn't that a fascinating passage? Righteousness and peace, mercy and faith, or truth. What do they have to do with each other? We, we treat them like they're opposites. Like there's truth on one hand and there's mercy on the other. Hallelujah, I'm going to cling to mercy because truth, we don't want that truth. You know, truth is hard. Truth is harsh. Truth is un, for, unyielding and unforgiving. I want mercy instead. The Bible teaches that they meet together in one. The grace of God meets together with my living faith and makes me right with God. His grace provided a way for me to be right. And my faith, if it's alive, will respond to anything that He asked me to do. You see, God has always justified people on the basis of a living faith. And he's fixing to give us a couple of examples here. But he's always justified people on that same basis. From the very beginning all the way through, God doesn't change. His plan for being right with him has always been this. You need to have a living faith. You have a living faith. Look at what the passage says. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? You see me and I'm hungry. And you don't give me anything to eat. But you say, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, brother. I'm, I'm praying that things will work out for you but you won't help me. Is that faith? Is that godliness? Is that what God wants you and I to be and to do? He's saying no. He's saying that's meaningless. It's useless for you to say, yeah, I'll bless you and I'll... I'll never forget years ago, I used to work building fence, work construction. I built these six and eight foot privacy fences around houses. And we were driving one day and we had the fence truck and it was, Jeremy, this was your dad that I was riding with and he was driving, that's why the pickets ended up on the ground. And he turned the corner a little sharp and all these fence pickets, several thousand of them, end up on the ground by this truck. 
And we're standing out here by the highway, picking up all these fence pickets, restacking them up on the fence truck. And this car drives by, and it's got a bumper sticker on it from one of the big popular churches in town at the time. And they rolled down the window and they honked. And they yelled, God bless you! They drove right on by. You know what that good, what good that did for us? Zip, zero, zilch, nada, nothing. It was meaningless. It was useless. All it did was irritate us. Didn't help us at all. That's what Christian faith is. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying you can talk about Jesus all day long, but if you don't have any works to back it up, you might as well be saying blah, 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 blah. Because it doesn't mean anything. It's useless for Christians. You know, our afternoon service at at one thirty, we have what we call applications, right? And what that is, is one or two or three of the guys will get up and they will talk about how to put this message that we heard Sunday morning into practical use in your life. You know why we do that? Because we don't want us, our faith to be blah, blah, blah. We want it to be real. We want it to be different. We want to be the kind of people that we claim to be. He says here in James 2, the next verse, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James says, you try to, you talk big about your faith. But James says, the reality is, you are what you do. You're not what you say you'll do. Those are different things. Did you ever say you were going to do something and never get it done? Did you ever do that? Yeah, y'all know me. <laughs> I said I was going to do a lot of stuff I never got around to getting done. It's meaningless. You say you're going to do it. Doesn't mean a thing. What matters is actually doing the things that you say you're going to do. Somebody says, yeah, preacher, I got faith. And James answers that. He says, oh yeah, you got faith? Show me. Don't talk to me about how you're going to come to church. Don't talk to me about how you're going to do nice things. Don't talk to me about how you're going to tell your friends about Jesus. Just come to church, do good things, and tell your friends about Jesus. Instead of just talking the talk. You know, he goes ahead here and he says this. Do you believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So he says, yeah, but I'm a believer in Jesus. That's good. That's great that you believe in Jesus. That's great you believe in God. So does the devil. The devil not only has an intellectual Agreement that Jesus is the Son of God, the devil also has an emotional response to that, doesn't he? He trembles. Faith, living faith, is not an intellectual thing, and it's not an emotional thing. It's an obedience thing. That's what living faith is. You know, it's one thing to believe in God. It's something else to believe God. Does that make sense, what I'm saying to you all?
It's not enough just to believe in God. You have to believe God. And when God says you don't show partiality, that means you don't show partiality. And that's just the way I live because that's what God said. Not because it makes sense to me, not because it's reasonable to me, but because that's what God told me to do. No matter what it is God tells me to do, I don't argue with it. He says this over and over. Do you not know that faith without works is dead? Oh, foolish man. He says, if you don't have any works, that's your faith. Now, I'm not telling you you don't have faith. What I'm telling you is you have dead faith if your faith doesn't move you to do something. The devil has faith, but it's dead faith. And see, what God has always saved His people on is not just faith, but it's faith that's alive. It's living faith. And He uses a couple of examples. Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You remember what Abraham did? God said, I'm going to give you a son. He had Ishmael. God came back and said, no, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And he says, no, Lord, I've got a son. He said, no, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And that's going to be the son of promise. And so he gave him Isaac. And he said... Okay, now there's conflict in this home. You need to get Ishmael out of the home. So he sent Ishmael out. God said, I'll take care of him. He said, now Isaac, this son, your son of promise, I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. You're going to have so many grandkids and great-grandkids, it's going to be like the sand on the seashore. You can't even count them. And Isaac begins to grow up, and Abraham's got this son of promise. And then one day, God comes to Abraham and He says, Abraham, I want you to load up some firewood and get the donkey. And I want you to get Isaac. And I want you to go over here to this mountain. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. You know what Abraham did? You know the story. The Bible says he arose early the next morning to go do that. He arose early the next morning to do what God told him to do. Now, I'm just being honest with you. If it were me, I'd have gone, I don't mean to be disrespectful, Lord, but, you know, I've got these promises here you made me through this boy. Not Abraham. God said, go kill him. If If God's got to raise the boy from the dead to keep His promise, so be it. I don't know what he's doing, but he's God. And he told me to go kill the boy. So I'm going to go kill the boy. And he went to the mountain, and you know the story about how God stopped his hand. Remember how it went? And God told him, he said, Now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Did God not know about Abraham's faith? Did God not know that? Abraham had a living faith. If Abraham had said, No, Lord, I followed you to to this barren land. I left everyone at home. I did all this other stuff, but I am not doing this. 
Do you think Abraham would have been known as the friend of God? No. The passage we just read said the Scripture was fulfilled saying that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is Abraham believing God. That's what that is. That's Abraham believing God. It wasn't that Abraham had a Bible study with the family and talked about how we need to believe God. That wasn't believing God. This is believing God. Believing God is doing what He said to do even when I don't want to do it, even when I think it's the worst idea there ever was in the history of the world. If God said to do it, I do it. That's believing God. And if I won't do that, my faith is dead. It's not alive. And my faith won't save. My faith won't join me to God. A living faith, though, a living faith is the faith that doesn't doubt God. And that's why James can say, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. What he's saying in our language is this, he's justified by faith that's alive and will do what God says instead of a faith that's dead and won't obey Him. That's what he's telling in this passage. Now, you can't get any more different. We're starting with Abraham, the, the peak of godliness that's ever lived on the face of the earth. And he says, I'm going to give you another example. And I'm going to go just as far from that as you can go. And I'm going to find an old Gentile prostitute. And we're going to see that she walks the talk just like Abraham walked the talk. He said this, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? You remember that story? The spies came into the land and Rahab, this harlot, a Gentile harlot in Jericho, she hides the spies, the men of God. She hides them and she helps them escape. And she says, you remember me. She says, I know you're God. And we're afraid of your God. And I I trust your God. I, I want your God to save me. And the spies said, If you don't tell anybody where we've went, our life for yours. We'll save you. Notice. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Why? Because she had a living faith. She didn't just sit back and go, You know, if there's a war, I think they're probably going to win. That's not what she did. Her living faith motivated and moved her to do. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You think he's made his point? I think he's made his point very clearly. Now, As we conclude this, tying it all back together, started out with partiality, right? You know, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about how we treat each other and how we treat other people. And he's saying, it's meaningless to talk the talk if you're not going to walk the walk. It's meaningless. Jesus' words about this subject were these. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Once you know it's easy for me to be nice to you guys. That's easy because you've all been good to me. 
It's easy for me to treat you well because you've treated me well. But you know anybody can do that. As you may have heard me mention before, Hitler had friends. Hitler had friends. People that Hitler treated good liked Hitler. Anyone can be nice to people who treat them nice. Anybody can be good to people who treat them well. But Christians are different. Christians are the kind of people that treat others good, even the others that treat them bad. They treat them good. Why? Because we have a living faith. Because that's where God is. We're going to be perfect. That means complete, just as our Father in heaven is complete. Got the holiday season coming up. Next week we're going to have, or this this week I guess, we're going to have Black Friday. Is that right? Is that this week? We went to Black Friday at Walmart one morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, saw people getting a fist fight over a digital camera. In, I'm talking fists were flying, buddy. Well, love that holiday spirit. You know what? As Christians, as you go through this holiday, don't treat people bad, even if they treat you bad. The people that you live with, the people that you're around, the people that maybe you feel like have really wronged you, if you're a Christian, don't treat them bad. It's not the way God does things. And that's not the way God's people do things. We have a living faith that doesn't just talk it, but we walk it. And that's why I want to leave with you, I think, the final message in this, is you walk your talk. When it comes to partiality especially, but in all areas of Christianity, you walk your talk. Don't just talk it, but actually live that way. If we can assist you spiritually in any way, we do offer a song of invitation. If you make that need known while we stand and sing.